Secure Financial Advisors, a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full informed investment decision. This is your money, your wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Now, here's Joe Anderson and Big Al Clopine. Hey, welcome back to the show. Show is called Your Money or Wealth. Uh, my name is Joe Anderson. I'm a certified financial planner. I'm with Alan Klopine. He is a CPA. Happy Independence Day weekend, everyone. Hey, let's get into IRAs there, Bal. Yeah, because, Joe, this last week I happened to run across this article by Ed Slott, who probably is the foremost expert on IRAs in the country. The foremost authority. Authority, not yeah. expert. Well, same, same. <laughs> Anyway, so he wrote this article about 10 common IRA distribution mistakes, Joe. And the reason why this is pretty important is now we're in the month of July, and the baby boomers are actually turning 70 and a half uh, and uh, having to take their required distributions. And how do you go about it? There are so many confusing rules, and there's a lot of mistakes and a lot of penalties I, I dare say the IRS is pretty excited because they know we're going to make a lot of mistakes and they're going to get a lot of tax money and penalty money from us for some of these mistakes. And so I got 10 of them here. We'll kind of go through as many as we can. The first one uh, that he talks about is multiple accounts subject to required minimum distributions. So, so clients often have multiple IRA accounts uh, that are subject to required minimum distributions. No mystery there. She says, make sure your clients have taken all their retirement plans into account so nothing falls through the cracks. Right, and I think it's the different titling of those accounts. So if you have a 401k, maybe you have a SEP IRA, you have an IRA, maybe a 403b, you gotta be careful there. Because yes. the SEP IRA and the IRA you know, you could call those IRAs, but the 401k and 403bs, you got to take separate required distributions. And- You're right about that. So what he says is you got to organize them by category. So your IRAs uh, can be grouped together, IRAs, SEP IRAs, simple IRAs, but your Roth IRAs are separate, so they could be grouped together as well. Roth yeah, but IRAs. a Roth IRA doesn't have a required distribution. True. But a Roth 401k does. True, true. <laughs> so and, unless gotta- it's unless it's an inherited Roth IRA, and that's we'll get to that here in a, in a second. So here's what he says. The required minimum distribution of, of each IRA should be calculated separately, but the total RMD for the IRA group can be taken from one or any combination of IRAs in that group, right? So in other words, you got six IRAs. You're supposed to calculate how much um, your required minimum distribution is for each of the six, but you can take that as a lump sum out of one IRA, and this special uh, aggregation rule uh, for IRAs also applies to 403B plans. So if you have more than one 403B plan, you can aggregate those. Which a lot of teachers do. A 403B yes. is just a 401k plan for um, educators or maybe you work in a hospital, nonprofit. Um, it's the basically kind of the same laws within a 401k. There's subtle differences. It's not right. an ERISA plan. And there's right. certain things when it comes to beneficiary designations. I'm not going to get that deep in it. But... Um, basically you still have to take a required distribution out of the plan. But if you have multiple plans, which a lot of teachers do, right. because you know, they might have one plan and then they, you know, another salesman came into their office or their classroom and then they got into another plan. And so they might have multiple 403B or TSAs or tax sheltered annuities um, is another terminology for it. So yes, you can group those, but make sure that you take a total of the group 
right? So if you have a million dollars in 17 different TSAs right. or 403B plans, you could take the required distribution, which would be roughly 40000 bucks, and you could take that from one plan. Right. But here's what I think a lot of people don't realize is you have to take your IRA required distribution out of IRA accounts and your 403B out of 403B accounts and your 401Ks. You actually have to take one of those out of every single 401K that you have. So a lot of people think they can group the whole thing together and take the required minimum distribution out of just, say, the IRA, for example. And so what you've done is you've taken too much out of the IRA and you'll be penalized for not taking your required distribution out of your 401K 403B, TSP, whatever it may be. Even though you took the right amount of distribution Correct. out of one plan, but you didn't take them out of all plans, there's a 50% um, penalty. Right. 5-0, yeah. 50% on any distribution that didn't take out of that certain plan. Right. So here's another one. Required minimum distributions from inherited traditional IRAs can be combined only with other traditional inherited IRAs from the same decedent. Now this gets confusing, right? So you got a you you got a inherited an IRA from mom and inherited one from dad. That's different people. So that's different required distributions out of different accounts. Now if you had three accounts from dad, you can combine those in a required distribution, and four accounts from mom, you can do those in one dis uh, required distribution. But you can't combine the both of them. Right, because it, the the decedent is still the owner of the account. Right. And this is where it gets a little confusing. It's just like, okay, well, I'm the beneficiary, right? Mom and dad died. They both had retirement accounts. I am the beneficiary of those accounts. So why can't I just combine those and put those into my IRA? All right. Well, that's a blow up because it, it's not yours. You're the right. beneficial owner. You are not the owner of that account. The decedent is still the owner of the account. So it would be the decedent's name is still on the owner. So mom, um, Jones, deceit. You know, uh, deceased on whatever date that Mom Jones died for right. the benefit of you, right. right? Now you have to take a required distribution based on your life expectancy from that account, and then the next year Dad dies. Well, then Dad, you you now it still stay in Dad Jones's name for the benefit of you, and then now you have to take a separate distribution from that account based on your life expectancy, which you'd be a year older. So if they were the same balance, right? So you inherited a hundred thousand from Mom and a hundred thousand from Dad. You have to take two separate distributions from those two IRA accounts. Right. Boy, here's company plans are subject to required distributions, but there's a couple of exceptions, Joe. One is the still working exception. So if you have a 401k plan, um, the required beginning date, meaning the, when you have to start taking these required minimum distributions, uh, is, is, it's the same. It's, it's April 1st of the, of the year after retirement for IRA owners, uh, and the same for the, the 401ks after you were, well, not IRA. It's, it's, the IRA is at 70 and a half. You have to take the, the required beginning date is April 1st of the following year. And if you take it that year, you have to take two of them. So with regards to the 401k, uh, if you are still working in the company and you're not more than a 5% owner in that company, you're able to d delay that required beginning date till April 1st of the following year that you finally separate from service. So you could be 80 years old potentially and still not taking a required distribution in that 401k. And here's the confusing part, though, is, is if you have other 401ks that are not related to that company, you have to take a required minimum distribution from that. And if you have IRAs, you have to take a required minimum distribution from that as well. So let's say that you continue to work at your employer, and then you have that exemption. 
So you retire in July, but your required beginning date is not until April 1st the following year. Correct. If you wait until April 1st the following year to take the distribution, you still have to take two. You do, right. Right. Even though it's not required to take it in the year that you do retire, the actual required beginning date starts the following year. But if you wait till the following year, you will have to take two distributions. And if you've worked for a company and you're 80 years old, I would imagine potentially, well, it's, it could go one of two ways. If you're still working at 80, you either love it or you have to. Right. And if you love it, you probably have a ton of money in your retirement account. If you have to, you probably don't have much. True. Right? Was that, is that a fair assumption? I, I, I would say that. So if you love it and you're still working and you're 80 years old, like John Bogle, right, he's going to have to take a large required distribution because it's not based on, you, you know, some people hear, okay, well, what is the required distribution? And then they hear the term 3.6 or 4%. Well, that's at 70 and a half. When you're 80, your distribution is significantly larger. Right, because your life expectancy is is is, uh, is exactly. shorter, right. right? Because you're supposed to take your balance divided by your your life expectancy per the IRS tables. So right? the IRS knows when we're going to die. They do. They they have a they have a, a weighted average apparently, <laughs> and they actually stretch it a little bit further because they don't want you to run out of money on that you know before you die. But Joe, I've been uh, I tell you, I've been a CPA for over thirty years, and it does amaze me how many people fail get to get the message about tax planning and the rules until they make a mistake that costs them thousands of dollars that otherwise could have been avoided. But then they finally get it. But here's the secret: it's to learn the rules, know about the planning before you have to learn the lesson the hard way. Because you can save more in taxes than you think, but you must use a forward-looking tax-efficient strategy. This is Your Money, Your Wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Hey, welcome back to the program. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson, Big Al Clopine. Happy Independence Day weekend. Talking about IRA moves, mistakes that people are making. Um, what, the oldest baby boomer is turning 70 and a half, and that is a requirement by law that you have to start taking distributions from the overall account. And so there's some mistakes that people are making, depending on what type of account that they have, where should they be taking the distributions, and how many distributions should they be taking. And <laughs> Oh, it's, it couldn't be more confusing, Joe. And, and, uh, and even when you die, there's, uh, you still don't get out of these required distributions. So most Well, they do. The heirs don't. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the heirs. And, and the, here's the comment. Death gets you out of pretty much everything in the tax code except required minimum distributions because they must be taken in the year of your death. And if you haven't taken it, your beneficiaries have to take it. And so the point of confusion is is that... Well, if, they, if the decedent was over age 70 and a half. Correct. That's right. If it was before their true, required beginning date, then they do not have to take a required uh, distribution true, in the point. year of death. Good point. So here, here uh, is um, in the case uh, uh, where the somebody passes, they're over 70 and a half, and they have not yet taken their required distribution, uh, the beneficiary needs to take it in the year of death. So the, requ the required minimum distribution is going to get reported on his or her return, not the decedent's return. Okay? And then, uh, but the amount of the year of death required minimum distribution is not based upon the beneficiary's life. It's based upon the, the person that died. But because the they have to take the distribution that year. That right? They have year. a requirement that needs to be done in that calendar year. And if they pass away before they've taken the distribution, 
the distribution still has to come out that given year. Correct. So if they die Jan 1, they still have to take a distribution. That's right. Right, And it's based on the decedent's life expectancy, so, not the necessarily the beneficiary. Right. So in other words, whatever the decedent would have had to take it out as a required uh, minimum distribution, the beneficiary has to take it out. Then the following year, it's based upon the beneficiary's life. Right. And then a lot of times what happens is that, let's say that a, a, someone passes away that's over 70 and a half, that you have to take that requirement out of the retirement account. And they, there might be four different beneficiaries on that overall account. And so the, maybe there's a successor trustee, right, that's d administrating the estate. And they're like, okay, well, you know, Jill, Joan, Bobby, you know, these are your IRAs. We can split these. And they potentially split the IRAs, right, and they give them, and hopefully they title everything correctly. And they forget to take the required distribution. Or maybe one beneficiary takes a distribution. And if the other beneficiaries don't, well, then you've got a problem because you have a 50% excise penalty tax. You do. And each year that that distribution is not taken. So you have to be extremely... So if you're inheriting retirement accounts, you have to know what the heck is going on. Unfortunately, they're one of the most complex tax rules when it comes to these things because of the benefits that you receive while you're alive. You get the pre-tax dollars going in potentially or after tax if you're lo looking at a Roth, and it grows 100% tax deferred. You don't pay taxes until you pull the money out, and if it's a Roth, then it's tax-free. Because of that added benefit, it gets so much more complex, and the IRS is all over this because there's $24 trillion in retirement accounts right now. Right, yeah. And Joe, I, I'll tell you, and it, you, you probably haven't heard a lot of press on this because IRAs are relatively new, but now what's happening is with the baby boomers, so they're turning 70 and a half, they have to start taking these required distributions, and people are passing away now with these IRA balances, and those that are inheriting them, as you say, you gotta learn what the rules are. And part of the confusion is, uh, is when you take your first required minimum distribution, what balance do you use to calculate the required distribution? So in the first year of the RMD, required minimum distribution, use the balance as of December 31st, uh, the year before the client turned 70 and a half, uh, which could, is, is the client's first distribution year, even if the distribution isn't taken until the following year. So we just said, if the year you turn 70 and a half, you can wait till April 1st of the following year, but you go to the December 31st balance, not of the beginning of the well, year. Well, you got to take two distributions. Well, you right, do. Alan? So what, what that's saying is this, is that, all right, well, let's say you use your required beginning date. You don't take the required distribution in the year that you inherited the account, whatever. So, or... <laughs> Or, or even your own account. Yeah, this, so is, now, this, is, this uh, is when you turn 70 So I'm and 70 and a half, and I'm saying, all right, well, here, I don't want to take that distribution until April 1st the following year because I'm still working. I'm not going to work next year. I'm going to be in a lower tax bracket, so the two distributions is not going to hurt me. We would always probably take a look at your tax return to make sure that you know which year that you should be taking the distribution, right? But anyway, it's like, all right, well, i got to take two distributions, once for this year, once for the following year. Right. So you have to take a look at 1231 of the previous year first, right? So that would be two years. So if I wait till next year, yeah. I have to look two years back to see what that balance was to take the distribution and then 1231st the following or the previous year. Right. So you, you have to be careful because if you take the wrong amount and people are thinking, well, how the hell would the IRS know? Well, they, they may or may not, but they know the balances and they know that there's a lot of money in there. And uh, I would not kind of monkey around with it because it's a huge, steep penalty. Yeah, if you've ever wondered why, uh, especially when you're younger, why you get these statements that look like IRS forms that say what the IRS, the IRA balance is, right? The, the IRS knows what the balance is. They also know what your age is. 
from the Social Security Administration so they can calculate what the required minimum distribution should be. And if you don't take it, as you said, Joe, it's a 50% penalty. So in this example, so let's say you're turning 70 and a half this year and you decide to wait till next year to take that first required minimum distribution. And of course, you have to take two next year. So that first one you have to take by April 1st. You have to look at your IRA balances as of December 31st of 2015. And you go to the table that's that's going to say take that balance and divide it by 27. So that's the first required distribution that you take next year. The second one you have to take by December 31st. Now you look at your IRA balances as of December 31st, 2016, and then you got to go to that table. It's probably divided by 26.2 or something like that. I don't have it in front of me. But uh, anyway, that that gets pretty confusing. Right, because the year is now 2017. So you right. got to look at 2015 end year, 2016 end year. Right. And will you have that information? Probably not, because you don't know how much you should be taking. Yeah, that's true. Here's another one, inherited IRA mistakes. I think this is going to be one of the biggest issues. Uh, and and this is when you, have, uh, when you inherit an IRA, uh, let's say in 2015, the required minimum distribution will generally be due by the end of 2016, at least for you, depending upon... Um, you know, whether the person's over 70 and a half and they, they took that distribution. But uh, there are special exceptions for spouses, and we'll get into that in a minute. But if there's more than one beneficiary, say three children, then the inherited IRA must be split by the end of the year into separate property titled, uh, separately titled inherited IRAs in order for each beneficiary to take advantage of the stretch IRA based upon his or her own life expectancy. If the split is not done by the end of the year, then the required minimum distribution for all beneficiaries will be based upon the age of the oldest beneficiary or the one with the shortest life expectancy. And, and that's also true if a trust is titled uh, the name of the beneficiary. So a lot of times people will name the trust, but you might have five different people that your assets are going to, right? You have three or four adult children, and then maybe you have two or three grandchildren that the money's going to go to. Well, maybe giving the IRA to the grandchild might be a better use because they can stretch out that tax liability over the grandchild's life expectancy is going to be a lot more favorable. But if you name the trust as the beneficiary, right, and you don't do it correctly, what's going to happen is that all of the beneficiaries are going to have to take a required distribution based on the oldest. And that's the same if you don't split the IRAs by the end of the year to death. That is the same. And, and of course, what we're talking about is required minimum distributions. You can always take more out. So let's just be clear about that. But you have to take at least the minimum out. Otherwise, you get penalty, penalized. And, and Joe, this becomes so much more complicated when you are in retirement age because your taxes don't stop when your paycheck does. And in fact, you need income because you've got bills, you've got living expenses. And where does that come from? In many cases, it comes from your IRAs, your 401ks, your 403bs. And when you tap your nest egg, it comes with all sorts of new rules, as we're discussing. Instead of contributing to tax-deferred plans that reduce your taxes, you'll start tapping those savings for income and paying taxes at your regular rate unless you're tapping into a Roth IRA. So as you near retirement, tax planning becomes more important than ever. But you must use a forward-thinking tax strategy if you want to save on taxes because you have more control over paying taxes in retirement, more than you think, actually more so than any other time in your life. Now back to your money, your wealth on Talk Radio 760 AFMB. Hey, welcome back to the program. Show it's called Your Money or Wealth. Joe Anderson, Big Al Clopine, hanging out. Happy Independence Day weekend. We're trying to help you find that financial independence by not making any mistakes with your retirement accounts. 
having a plan in place that understands that, hey, you might be living a little bit longer, that tax rates potentially could go a little bit higher, that the markets are volatile as ever, that inflation could go up, healthcare costs, everything else, putting everything in in uh, strategy to make sure that you don't outlive your money. Go to purefinancial.com to get more information there. Alan, when you're talking IRAs, you briefly talked about the spousal. Right. And so what happens is that, let's say if you have a retirement account and you pass away, um, and you're married, your spouse can roll your dollars into their own. Right. And there's pros and cons of doing this. Or they can keep the IRA in, in the their deceased uh, a spouse's name. Correct. So those are the decisions. You keep it in the decedent's name or you roll it into your own. And so you have to look at some factors here. A, if you're under 59 and a half, that's when you want to keep it in the decedent's name potentially. Because let's say that you're married and your spouse has a lot of money in the retirement account. And then if that spouse were to pass, you would need to tap into that account to maintain your living expenses. Well, if you're under 59 and a half and you roll the spouse's account into your own, right? Well, then you have to wait until you're 59 and a half to take the money out without a 10% penalty. Right. If you keep it in the decedent's name, so unfortunately your spouse might have passed, you know, very prematurely and you need to tap into some of those accounts, you could keep it in the decedent spouse's name and you will have full access of that money without the 10% penalty. Right, because it acts like an inherited IRA. You got it. So that's one reason to keep it in there. Another reason why you wouldn't want to keep it in there is that if your spouse is significantly older than you. So if your spouse is older than you and passes away, and you keep it in the decedent spouse's name, well, then that IRA will have to take a required distribution as if the spouse was still alive. Like when that spouse would have turned 70 and a half, you will have to start taking distributions from that account if you want the money or not, even though you're nowhere near 70 and a half. Right. And so, as you can see, it's completely different rules if a spouse inherits an IRA versus a non-spouse like kids. And that's partly, Joe, that's partly what's so confusing because the rules are so different. And it's uh, it's just it, it's understanding the rules because the penalties are severe. If you don't take the required minimum distribution when you are supposed to, it's a 50% penalty. Right, and then if the money is staying in the IRA, it's also a six percent excise tax each and every year that that stays there. Now the IRS does have a certain amount of leniency uh, if you request a waiver because maybe you didn't understand the rules, and they will do that. Not guaranteed, by the way, but they will often do that. It's better not to go that route, but they'll probably only do that once. You probably only get one free ticket, even if you only if you get that. It, you know, at all. Right. And I think some people think that the custodian will automatically do the required distribution for you. Right. No, it's not their money. They're, they're not going to distribute the required distribution. It's like, all right, well, they might give you a notice and they say, hey, you know, you have to take a required distribution, but it's your money. You will have to take those dollars out. And if you don't take the dollars out, then that's what we're talking about, the steep penalties of 50%. And then if you inherit one, if you commingle the accounts and things like that, the, 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 the custodians such as, let's say, Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade, Fidelity, Vanguard, they have no clue. They're just a custodian of the money, right? It's your money. You need to know the rules. No one cares about your money more than you do. So, so be careful, I guess, to say the least, because these things are infested, right? Infested, infested. with tax. Oh, that's a good word. How about this one, Joe? Net unrealized depreciation. Yeah, that's going away soon. It may. I mean, it's been on the chopping block for a while, but here's what it is and it's currently available, which is if you have company stock inside of your 401k uh, and you retire, you are allowed to pull that stock out uh, and put it in your regular brokerage account, your trust account, 
and then uh, you will pay taxes, uh, but only on the cost basis of that. So let's say you have a company stock worth $100,000, and you bought it for $10,000 way back when. So you pay taxes on $10,000 at your ordinary income rate, and the rest of the dollars, $90,000, would be the gain. You pay that at special capital gains rate when you actually sell that stock. So you, you, you'll end up paying a potentially a lot lower tax rate. And here's what happens, though, is um, that is only true when it's in a 401k. So if you roll those dollars out of the 401k into an IRA, then you lose that opportunity. And that's a, that's a forever loss. There's no way to undo that. And we sometimes see clients doing that. We sometimes see advisors doing that, not understanding the rules. And they try to figure out how to push it back into the IRA. That's a, that's a, blown, um, that's a blown strategy. You can't undo that one. So you want to combine some of these different strategies with different, different tax laws. Because ideally, you want to get as much money out of your retirement account with the least amount of tax possible. And so net unrealized appreciation allows you to do that by getting only paying tax on the overall tax basis of the stock. And then if you put it in your retirement account and then you strategically look at the taxation, now it's capital gains tax on that stock. So if you're in the 15% tax bracket or lower, you could potentially sell some of that stock with zero tax. Right. Right? Or if you're in the 15, well, the 15% is going to be probably less than your ordinary income tax, or maybe you do tax loss harvesting on other um, securities that you have that might have gone down in value. You can sell those at a loss and then sell your other stock at a gain and offset that gain dollar for dollar. So there's different things that you want to make sure that you, you, you consider in regards to your overall retirement strategy when it comes to taxation. Yeah, sometimes with, with these net unrealized appreciation uh, strategies, let's say you take out $100,000, let's say you're married, and let's say you've got, I don't know, let's say you, you have your taxable income is only about 20000 bucks. So you got about um, 50000 plus that you could actually sell of that stock, stay in the 15% bracket, and pay no f federal capital gains tax at all. And if you're right near year end, maybe you sell half of it in, in December, half of it in January, and you basically you end up, pay, end up paying no capital gains tax at all. You only pay tax on the, on the cost basis at your ordinary income rate. And the second problem with that, Joe, is that in the same year that you pull out the stock, you've got to distribute the rest of the money out of the 401k into an IRA. Otherwise, that blows the whole thing, too. And that entire NUA amount, that entire $100,000 stock will be taxed at ordinary income. Can you do an in-service withdrawal with some of the money, keep the stock in there? Um, that's only if there's a triggering event that happens after. And that's where that retirement. gets... Retirement. Yeah, like retirement. So you can take an in-service withdrawal out of some of the monies that you have, let's say. You before, to, before you retire. Before you retire. Keep the stock inside the plan. Yeah. And then when you retire, then that's when it happens. But you can also do net unrealized appreciation potentially prior to your retirement, but it blows up the plan. You can't contribute to the plan. Yeah, anymore. so that's tricky. I, I generally wouldn't necessarily recommend that. Right, but it's it's tough sometimes, too, because it's like, okay, well, here, I feel that the stock is at an all-time high. You know? mm -hmm. And I, I don't know. I want to make sure that I get it out now and diversify Right before versus diversifying within the plan. I know that is tough. I agree because you got conflicting goals because you have a huge concentration risk inside of your four hundred one k, and if you're not going to retire for five years, right? But then you you blew up your plan. Right, so then you lost your investment anyway. Of course, you probably lost your job as well because you got you know you got laid off. So, 
that's why I think seeking professional advice on this stuff is so critical. If it's not with us, find someone that understands taxes and retirement and put all this stuff together. Uh, when we formed Pure Financial Advisors, we identified four major criticisms in the industry. One was compensation structures and a conflict of interest. So we set it up as a fee-only fiduciary. All advisors are A, competent. They're a certified financial planner. They're a CPA or they're a chartered financial analyst. And Oh, who's that? They're ready to Oh, they, call. they they're, they're already excited. calling in they're for excited. their excited. They want some help. Yeah, they do. And uh, and then we looked at okay, well here, we want to make sure that we give, we give competent advice because this stuff is complicated. It's not about buying a product, it's not about a hot stock. It's about coordinating your overall financial goals in life when it comes to your overall retirement accounts because we know most of you have a lot of the wealth that you've saved inside retirement accounts. How do you get that money out of the retirement account with the least amount of tax and then avoid all the conflicts of interest when it comes to compensation? All of the advisors at our firm are certified financial planners and a salaried only employee. So they're not compensated via commissions and fees and anything else. So if you want to get the unbiased advice from a fiduciary, um, Pure Financial might be a good place to start. We're ranked in the Financial Times top 300. There's 30 some odd thousand registered investment advisory firms. We're one of the fastest growing firms in the nation because we identified that a lot of you need help and you don't know where to turn. So if you want our help, I'm a little biased here that I think we're the best firm in town. Five, seven, got to take a break. Show's called Your Money or Wealth. Now back to your money, your wealth on Talk Radio 760 KFMB. Hey, welcome back to the program. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. My name's Joey Anderson. I'm a certified financial planner. I'm with Big Al Clopine. He's a CPA. Thanks for tuning in today. Happy 4th of July weekend. I was listening to a podcast or financial planning show, whatever. Okay. Caller calls in, says, all right, hey, I'm very confused on my overall options when it comes to my 401k plan. I'm an engineer. I don't really understand. You know, I think I can put 50% of my income into the plan up to a maximum, and then there's a 4%, and then I guess up to 24000 and then there's a Roth provision. I know exactly what this individual is saying because we hear these questions all the time. Right. What They're confused, and it gets confusing when it comes to, especially the match when it comes to your overall plan. First of all, let me just let the record straight. For all of you who are listening, <clears throat> that you want to make sure that you, A, talk to your HR person, all right, or the plan administrator. So maybe that could be Fidelity, that could be whoever. Whoever, look at your 401k statement. Find out, A, if you have a Roth provision in the plan. Most of you probably do, and you don't even know it. So you want to make sure that you understand your entire plan options. Now, if you work for a large company, okay, um, the limitations is $18,000 that you can put into a 401k plan or a 403b plan or a 457 plan. All right. $18,000. So it's not a percentage of your income. It's $18,000. If you're over 50, then there's a catch-up provision. So then you can go up to 24,000 bucks. So if you make $28,000, potentially you could put $24,000 in. It's not a percentage of your income. People still get confused on that. They, now, they do. And I'll just say, Joe, if you make $10,000, you can only put in $10,000 actually minus your FICA expenses. So probably about $9,000. So you have to make at least enough to cover. But it, the old rules used to be some of them, uh, a lot of plans had you limited 10% or even 25% of your salary, but it's it's now pretty much 100% that you can put in. Unless you're in a top-heavy plan, so that sure. could be a small employer in that you're highly compensated. And so because I'm highly co compensated, I might make $150,000, but most of the employees in the firm is making 30000 
right? Because I'm highly compensated, it's, it could be a top-heavy plan, and so the IRS doesn't like it that the highly compensated can shelter a lot of their income pre-tax, while the others is, can only shelter so much because they're not going to be saving as much. Right. So you just got to be aware of that as well. Then you got to take a look at the match. So they might say, all right, well, we'll match 5% up to 3% and then 50% up to the next 5 or something stupid like that. There's all sorts of different calculations when it comes to the match. The match in your contributions are two totally separate things here. The match is by the employer. The match that goes into your retirement plan is always going to be a pre-tax contribution or taxable to you, even though you have a Roth provision in the plan. For instance, I have a Roth provision in the 401k plan at my employer. I am maxing that plan out to $18,000. My employer is nice enough to match 4% of my contribution. So I get a couple of bucks for my employer. Even though my contributions after tax, the employer's match is going to go in pre-tax. So when I take monies out of that plan, even though 100% of my contributions were Roth, I'm still going to have a component in that plan that's going to be taxable to me. Because the company is giving you a match. They're getting the tax deduction for the match. So because the company is getting the tax deduction, it has to come out taxable to you. So just be aware of that as well. So if you're saying, hey, I got the Roth provision and I got a match, when you take those dollars out, just know that the match component of that is going to be taxable. Now, what should you do? Should I do the Roth provision or should I do the pre-tax? That was the question. Guess the answer was, I don't know, 50-50. <laughs> Look at your tax return, please. Look and see what tax bracket that you're in. Look at line 43. It's the second page of your 1040. Understand what line 43 is because when you start taking distributions, that is an extremely important line. That's going to determine how much of the income is taxable at whatever rate, depending on how much money that you pull out. Same with savings, right? You want to look at what tax bracket that you're in. That's going to determine if you go Roth or if you go pre-tax. And you look at it, let's say the top of the 15% tax bracket for married couples, I'm going to say $75,000 just to make it easy. My taxable income is $80,000. I want to save $10,000 a year into that 401k plan. Here's what you do. You put $5,000 pre-tax. That gets that taxable income to $75,000. Now you're in the 15% tax bracket. The other five, guess what? You go Roth. You want to be strategic about this. Right? Then you're maximizing the amount of money that you're going to have when it comes to distributions by having different pools of money. Yeah, and the, the same can be said, Joe, when you have money in an IRA and you want to start thinking about getting money into the Roth IRA. And so you want to start thinking about Roth conversions because you're allowed to do that. There's no income limitations anymore. So anybody can convert, whether working or not, regardless of income level, any amount that you want to. And a lot of times people will ask us, well, how much should I convert? And or, they'll, or we'll, we'll talk about it and they'll say, you know, I've, I was thinking about doing a conversion. I'm thinking about doing about 100000 What do you think? And it's like, well, let's let's take a step back. Let's look at your tax return. Let's see what tax bracket you're in to figure out what an appropriate conversion for you would be. But and I think even more importantly there too, Al, you have to take a look forward because I <clears throat> did a tax projection recently, um, hypothetically, or one of our CPAs on staff did for a client. And it's like, all right, well, here, they're going to be in the 15% tax bracket. They're retiring a little bit early. They're in the 15% tax bracket now. They should probably convert to the top of the 15. However... Once you look further, because they had large balances in their 401k plans, they had a little bit of pension, a little bit of social security, and they were frugal. They didn't spend a lot of money. You look at 70 and a half, guess what happened to their tax bracket? 
popped them up to the 25% tax bracket. You bet. So then it's like, okay, well, do you to convert to the 15% tax bracket or do you convert to the top of the 25? Those are discussions that you want to make sure that you're having. And then if you're not turning 70 and a half or maybe 5, 10, 12, 20 years, where do you think tax rates are going to go? Do you think they're going to go up, they're going to go down, or are they going to stay the same? This is a preference. My preference, or our opinion, Al and I's, we believe that tax rates can only go up for certain taxpayers. And if you're in the 25% tax bracket, 28% tax bracket, we feel that, hey, potentially you're going to be paying a little bit more tax. So you want to make sure that you're protecting your assets even more in those tax rates. That's exactly right, Joe, because the thing is now, and the, the reverse can be true too, you may be in a very high tax bracket today because of stock options and bonuses, and in retirement, you'll be in a lower bracket. Well, you're probably not a good candidate for Roth conversions. So you just have to take a look at what tax bracket you're in today versus what tax bracket you're going to be in the future, and that's when you can intelligently figure out how much to do as a Roth conversion. And interestingly enough, with the Roth conversions, you don't even have to be perfect on how much you convert because you're allowed to recharacterize all or part of it. So that means I do a conversion of $100,000. Next year when I do my tax return, I realize, you know what? I wish I would have only done $70,000 because that extra thirty put me into the too high of a tax bracket. I can recharacterize $30,000 out of that Roth, put it back into the IRA, all the way until I file my tax return and get it just right. And yeah, you could worry about it next year. Boy, that that to me, that's one of the real beauties of Roth conversions is you have the ability to make your, your best estimate right now. You have to do it in the calendar year, but you can undo whatever portion you want to, even the whole thing, if you want to later on when you do your tax return because maybe you got blown up into a too high of a tax bracket. Yeah, most definitely. So it's not looking at things in a vacuum. You got to plan this thing out. You look, chart it out, if you will, to say, all right, well, here's where I'm at now. You know, and a lot of you engineers come into our office with your spreadsheets, so you have a really good start. Most of you haven't even have a balance sheet, right? So we're getting into the weeds here a little bit, but it's so important because if you save money in taxes, your money's going to grow that much longer. You're paying less to Uncle Sam, right? And now your money is going to grow tax free for you. There's no better rate than zero. So then it's determined, do you want to pay a little bit more tax today to keep me in that same bracket so I have tax-free dollars in the future that I can pull from that I won't have to pay tax ever again on? Or if I pass away, then the heirs will never pay tax on it? It's pretty powerful if you understand kind of what your situation is first and then what the appropriate strategy is. Joe, it's, it's, it's understanding a few simple techniques to really take control over your taxes through retirement. Because when you are in retirement, you've got more control over taxes than any other time in your life because you can start figuring out which assets retirement account, non-retirement account, Roth IRA, where do I pull those distributions from? And you can control your taxes, but you may not be getting that advice from your current advisor because in most cases, it's not really their expertise. But I will tell you, there is a way to look at this, and that's by having a forward-looking tax-efficient strategy. And when I'm talking forward-looking, it's looking probably for the rest of your retirement years, uh, all the way through end of life, to figure out what your taxes are going to look like. What are the strategies that you need to do today? to put yourself in lower brackets later. 